Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. The first Baptist church was established in West Boughton Springs, Indiana in 1909 for the African-American community, many of whom worked at the West Boughton Springs Hotel. The Reverend C.R. Parrish served as the first pastor and was also one of the founding fathers. Land on which the building stands was acquired in 1909 from Lee W. Sinclair, owner and operator of the world-famous West Boughton Springs Hotel and president of the West Boughton Springs Company. Now, now, I'm going to pause right there. Am I saying that correct, West Boughton or West Baden? You could say it either way. All right, I don't want to jump ahead, but West Boughton, we're going to get proper tonight. Okay, let's talk. do it. Okay, well, I'm, I, I'm going to do... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say West Baden. <laughs> Mr. Sinclair's interest in having the First Baptist Church built was to accommodate the many black waiters, maids, porters, chefs, and other hotel employees who came to West Baden Springs from Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, and other, and other southern states. In 1992, the church was donated to the West Baden Historical Society. As the last surviving member of the church, Mrs. Dorothy Smith signed the deed, which converted the church and its property to the Historical Society. The West Baden Historical Society is making progress toward the restoration of the First Baptist Church. When restoration is complete, it may be used as a museum, performance and meeting space, and a wedding chapel. Now, Liz Mitchell, longtime Bring It On contributor and producer of the award-winning Dark Past, Bright Future, is here to elaborate more on the West Baden First Baptist Church Renovation Project. She and a host of volunteers are part of this grand restoration effort, and she joins us now to inform us on progress to date and other impactful community projects that she is involved with. Liz, as always, welcome to welcome, Bring It Liz. On. Welcome, Liz. Well, thank you. Hello, Bloomington community. Well, let's talk a little bit about just what brought this whole project into fruition, first off. Well, you know, um, this church was listed on the most, uh, Indiana's most endangered list. Mm -hmm. And the moderator for the Southeast District, uh, Reverend Turan, he and Pastor Bruce Rose, uh, Turan is in Evansville, Pastor Bruce Rose is here at Second Baptist Church Bloomington. The two of them went to a meeting in West Baden and said that they would like to see the church renovated and become a church and put a congregation in there. I guess there was another couple that was there that wanted to turn it into a private residence. The community wanted to see it as a church. They had tried and attempted a couple of times to uh, save it. They put a uh, restored the basement and the foundation, and then they put a new roof on it and trying to help, and that's about as far as they went. Mm -hmm. And so they were really pleased to see someone come in and say, we want to restore this church as a church, first and foremost. And then after that, what else can it do so the doors are open to the community and become uh, useful in the community in as many ways as possible? So that way we would like to, and of course it's up to the congregation that goes in there, but we would like to see it partner with the museum, who's virtually run out of room, to maybe put storytelling in there. One person acts. Um, uh, we would like to see uh, weddings. There, 
while we were working on the church, a young girl stopped by with tears in her eyes, wanting to come through and see the church in hopes that she could be married <coughs> in the church. So we're thinking it'll be multi-useful. The doors will be open to the community and everyone in the community has been overwhelmingly nice, uh, happy to see the progress on the church. We've made more progress than any other group that had attempted to work on a church and we're extremely happy and I'm excited to see the first service take place. Now I know going down last year, um, it was just basically a barren building. The inside, it was just looked like it was gutted. Mm -hmm. What is it looking like now? Oh, it's unbelievable. Like you said, it was gutted. You could stand inside and see outside without opening a door and not looking out the window. That's the shape it was in. Mm -hmm. The bell tower is completely done. The bell is ringing. We have, we're saving the church pews. They're being redone by a master craftsman from Cook's. Um, the bathrooms, the walls are up for that. Probably, if not this week, next week, that everything will be installed in the bathrooms. The walls have been redone. You know, we had to tear all that out. We had someone come in and uh, put in the insulation, put the drywall up. It's been prepared, sanded, painted. That's all done. The chandelier has been ordered. It is being paid for by a gentleman that wants to honor his parents. So he's pay he paid for the chandelier. Uh, we've got wall lights that are coming in, all replica of the 1900s. We want to keep everything in theme with the mm -hmm. early 1900s. Uh, the Amish are going to be doing the floors. We're going to have to put a subfloor in. We have uh, bids on putting in a little bit of carpet down the front. Um, it has just been, if you were there last year, Cornelius, and saw that, to walk in now, you would be amazed what the volunteers have done. Our volunteers are awesome. But more than that are the people who have donated to make this happen. Without them, the volunteers would be sitting but they don't have to sit. And we've got volunteers who are retired guys who know what they're doing. They're committed on their own dime. They come down there twice a week. And it's, it's just a blessing and it's an awesome thing to see. Seems like a wonderful way to get the community to, to come together and get galvanized around a project. Uh, two, two quick questions. Uh -huh. I recall maybe a year and a half ago there was, there was this ornate uh, stained glass window Yes. And it was heavy, too. It was, yeah. And I just want to make sure the thought was <clears throat> there was a desire to incorporate it in the renovation. It was was that successful? It's successful. Good. It's good. in. Okay. It's a done deal. Because that, that has a story all its own, too. Yes. That was donated from a young lady that I met um, during when Resilience put the first play on. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to donate this gorgeous stained glass window that I believe is even older than the First Baptist Church in West Baden. And we kept saying, no, go ahead and sell it, because mm -hmm. we knew the value. And she said, no, I really want this stained glass to go down there in the West Baden Church. And I contacted Pastor Rose, and he sent a group of men down there. We took a look at it, and it is up. It is gorgeous. Beautiful. It's going to be lit from within. 
Uh, we had a man from Bloomington, an electrician that did all of the work, and it is absolutely gorgeous. The Beautiful. last time I saw it, it's mounted on the wall, mm -hmm. and Deacon William Brown was redoing the paint, and he had it all taped up and, and all painted, and I tell you, it's just it's gorgeous. For, for our listening audience, I, I don't think you can really get the scope of this stained glass window. It took about eight to ten of us to get it to the door. Yes. We had to cut the door open, literally. We had to cut the door open to get this huge piece of stained glass through. It was probably a two-and-a-half-hour ordeal just to get this glass into church, so I have to go see what it looks like now myself. Yes, yes. You'll, you'll be amazed <clears throat> when you see it. Well, uh, I want to go back to uh, we were reading the intro uh, to this segment, and um, Lee Sinclair was owner and operator of the world-famous West Baden Springs Hotel. Mm -hmm. And there's something rather interesting. It notes that he wanted to create the First Baptist Church or wanted this church to be a place where the black waiters, maids, porter, chefs, and other hotel employees could go and work, or go and worship, rather. Uh, at, its, at its height, how many members uh, did uh, the Reverend C.R. Parish um, oversee, or, or how many members were there at the church? Well, let, let me give you a little background history of this church. French Lick had built the first hotel, and he was in partnership with, uh, with another man, and they kind of fell out. These two wealthy men kind of had parting of the ways. So then the hotel was built in French in West Baden, which, you know, they're a mile apart. French Lick had its employees at the French Lick Hotel. They had an AME church there, a Baptist church, Dunbar School, the Babylon for entertainment. And then when Sinclair took over the West Baden, he really didn't want his, now the terminology at that time was colored. He didn't want his colored help to go down to West Baden, I mean to French Lick. So you have these two towns with a little bit of rivalry. He wanted his colored people to have their church. So thus, for a dollar, he sold them the property. The parsonage was a little home next door. Those people sold them that property. And without an architect, the bellhops and waiters and people built this church. Uh, I'm in the process with a friend of mine, my dearest friend, we are trying to locate exactly how many members were in their church through descendants. And we found a couple uh, of people that we know for sure that were in that church. I would say probably 90 to 100 members. It's a small little church. And once we have it renovated, that's about all that's going to fit in there. We have people fighting already for the front first role whenever we have our first service. And are there naming opportunities, let's say pews or family naming opportunities? In the we have not gotten to that point to Okay, because I could see people that. Uh, being very we interested. We do have a that. lot of people who are interested in being members of the church. Okay. And someone is interested in being the pastor of the church. All right. Now, now let me ask you one other historical question. Uh, Dorothy Smith is yes. noted here as the last surviving member of the church to sign the deed 
which then transferred it over to the historical society down there, West Baden Historical Society. Is Mrs. Smith still living? No, she's not. Okay. Her nickname was Shorty Joe. She was <laughs> married to uh, Artie. Every, uh, he was with the fire department. Everybody in the community loved this couple. They were childless. They did a lot for the community. They bought the Wadi Hotel mm-hmm. from George and Nan Wadi. Mm-hmm. It was the hotel for the coloreds. So when you got when the train came in to West Baden, the colored passengers got off first, and then it went a few feet to let off the uh, white passengers. Now, mind you, these were well-to-do people who came from all over the country to come down to French Lick and West Baden to partake of the mineral waters and and the spa. So the Wadi Hotel for coloreds had all the same amenities, uh, amenities mm-hmm. that <clears throat> that they had for the white customers. Joe Lewis was their famous customer who came down every spring to train. And someone told me that when he would go to sleep, Artie would chose would uh, say, "Hey, you want to see Joe Lewis?" And he would charge people fifty cents to open <laughs> up the door <laughs> so they could peek at Joe sleeping. Don't know if that's true or not, but that's just some <laughs> of the things that I've heard in my research. Now, on another historical note, after she sold the deed back to the historical society, it's come present day. Didn't they resell it back to the church for a, a dollar once again? A dollar. Here we have that dollar story. Um, Sinclair sold the property to uh, his waiters and bellhops for a dollar to build a church. And the Southeastern District, which Second Baptist is a part of, again, a dollar once we've renovated the church. Well, this is uh, has all the makings of a of a feature film, uh, and that may be in, in, in the vision a little bit further down the road. Uh, Liz, you know, it's, it's kind of rare to get you. You are so busy, number one, to get on your social calendar is a major coup, but you accommodated us today, and there are a couple things we want to talk about in the time we have you here. Uh, and we could come back to the church, but uh, you are so busy. Um, while you, when you were last here, you were talking about Martinsville, and that was sort of a combined conversation with uh, other individuals. And you didn't get a chance to really elaborate on a lot of your uh, research findings concerning Martinsville. And, um, you know, we're all about progress and, and forward <coughs> thinking, you know, hence the name of your segment, Dark Past, Bright Future. So if you could share with us some of the other uncoverings that you made uh, while doing research on Martinsville. Let's take some time to do that. But, but if you could also just kind mm-hmm. of, and not any incidences in, in, in specific, but just a little bit about the historical context of Martinsville, its history, and some of the perceptions that may be true sure. and not true. Well, let's just start. Let's just say, first of all, on paper, Indiana was a free state. On paper, okay? So free blacks escaping slaves made their way through Indiana and they were not welcome here and so wealthy whites made sure that they brought their slaves with them and they forced them to sign indentured servitude papers I know of five cases two men and three women who said no and they sued for their freedom and won one Gladys portrayed was Mary Bateman Clark there was, she betrayed Mary Bateman Clark. Mm-hmm. Mary Bateman Clark was in Evansville, Indiana, and sued for her freedom and won. Another lady was Polly Strong, 
sued for her freedom and won, and uh, another lady by the name of Elizabeth. And then there were two gentlemen that did the same. So we know that free people and slaves, uh, free people coming from the North Carolinas following the, um, the Covenators and also the Quakers came through and made a lot of settlements here. Martinsville was no different except that there were free blacks that did come to Morgan, Morgan County. And at one time, believe it or not, let's say 1850s, they had the third, third highest population of blacks, more than Bloomington, than Monroe County. Marion County was number one. Owen County, Spencer was number two. And number three was Morgan. And what year was this? This was 1850. <coughs> and okay. let me tell you, the reason is, is because of the jobs. Right, People right. want for their children a better life, and they want jobs. In Martinsville, they had the mineral springs. Mm -hmm. They had spas. And they had two spas exclusively for coloreds. And so these are some of the surprising things that I found out about Martinsville. Now, just one question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how there were three women and two men who sued for their freedom. Was there any reason why more people didn't try to do the same thing, seeing that these five cases were won? Did you find anything out about that? Well, you know what? Uh, once that started happening, there were different laws that were passed. The lawyer that helped them was ran out of Indiana so that he could still breathe because they threatened to kill him. And then some of the wealthy people took their slaves back across, took their people back across the river to Kentucky so that they could still have that, that free labor. So you had a lot of little things. Um, one thing, there's no pat answer for anything because people could do what they want uh, with their property. Or if you were fortunate enough to escape and one of the routes came, came through Bloomington, a man by the name of John Reed was one of the first black settlers in Martinsville, just south of Martinsville, bought property, was farming. Some of the escaping slaves from Bloomington made their way to Reed's Farm, and from Reed's Farm, just south of Martinsville, went on up into Mooresville, which was a large Quaker population up there. Let me let me add one other thing to your to your point, Cornelius. One of the reasons why a lot of other indentured um, <coughs> individuals didn't pursue that route. Remember, there was no twenty-four hour news cycle, and news was at a snail's pace. Mm -hmm. uh, some papers perhaps never got the coverage or would not print that particular news uh, for fear of Reprising, encouraging other, yeah. encouraging others to also take uh, uh, similar action. But, you know, today we take a lot for granted. I take my smartphone and instantaneously see what's going on around the world. Back then, it might be six months. You remember tense Juneteenth? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. June it took years. It yeah. took years. Yeah. So, but that's fascinating because I would have never have, as they would say, thunk that that would have taken place in Morgan County and that Bloomington was more um, inhospitable than, say, Morgan County. Uh, well, was it that or was it the jobs? Well, they had jobs there. They had the spas there. Let me give you another, some more background history. Um, Indiana, you know, was admitted into the Union December the 11th, 1816, as a 19th state. 
Morgan County was established in February of 1822. The earliest report of blacks in Indiana was in 1746 in Vincennes, Indiana. In 1787, the Indiana Constitution prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude in the Northwest Territory, which Indiana was the Northwest Territory. In 1816, the Indiana Constitution clearly prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude, but nothing to give blacks their civil rights. So blacks here in Indiana could not vote serve in the militia, and could not testify against whites in court. In 1851, uh, Article 13 of the Constitution, no Negro or mulatto shall come into or settle in the state. Now, you heard that, Negro or mulatto. In case you are confused about that, Indiana had a law in the books from 1818 to 1965. The definition or classification of a Negro or mulatto, regardless of their skin color, eye color, hair texture, any person having one-eighth part more of Negro blood is a Negro. 1965. Yes, sir from 1818 to 1965. So just in case you're unclear about what a Negro or mulatto is, so that was on the record books. By 1851, Section 2, they set fines if you violated Article 13. And those fines, then they had a ruling for that. In Section 3, the fines provided money that would defray the cost of sending blacks from Indiana to Liberia. And they would give a black person $50 to get out of here. For those who are just tuning in, you're, you're hearing some compelling history from Liz Mitchell, who's a longtime Bringing On contributor and producer of the award-winning Dark Past, Bright Future. She's been elaborating on a variety of things. She's already talked about in the earlier portion of this uh, conversation, the West Baden First Baptist Church Renovation Project. And now she's bringing out some uh, pearls of historical uh, significance uh, concerning Morgan and Monroe and, and surrounding counties in southern Indiana uh, back in the late 18, mid to late 1800s. Uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead and continue. Okay. Uh, as I said before, free blacks and escaping slaves made their way to Indiana, but Indiana made it known that blacks were not welcome. Yet African Americans came with the Quakers and the Covenators. Black settlements were created throughout Indiana. You know, there was one in French Lick called Lick Creek, and there was one in Hamilton County called the Roberts Settlement, one over in Terre Haute, the Lost Creek. So there were black settlements, you know, in all but four of the counties here. Between the years of 1880 and 1820, the federal government allowed squatters to select and improve farmland in Indiana. John Reed, a free man of color, and his wife and children staked out about 80 acres southwest of Martinsville. They got their land patent on October the 25th, 1820. Soon other African Americans followed with the surnames, and here's some of the names that were of black folks in Martinsville. Goss, Hollingsworth, Collins, Langford, Mitchell, and Hudson's. 
Morgan County is divided into 14 townships, and Martinsville is in Washington Township. African Americans lived in only four townships, with the majority being in Washington Township, which is Martinsville, Indiana. The 1850 census has 97 Negroes living in Morgan County. 1860 census has 109, and by 1880, there were about 150 living in Washington Township. So out of all those townships, Martinsville had the highest number. Now think of this, like I said before, Indianapolis Marion County had the most, Spencer Owen County the second highest, Martinsville the third. <coughs> so by the yeah, by the nineteen by the nineteen hundreds, one hundred and six blacks lived in Morgan County, and out of that, forty nine lived in Martinsville, possibly because of the employment in the health spas, resort business that was thriving in Martinsville at that time. Well, hence their uh, high schools. Uh um, yeah, the Artesians. They're mm -hmm. mascot. Well, not mascot, but uh, yeah, their nickname yeah. is the Ar Artesians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the the spas and the sanitariums that opened up. The first one opened up in about 1888. Within 10 years, there were six facilities uh, created with artesian wells. Between all the years 1890 and 1930, 13 result resorts had sprung up, catering to the working class and individual political leaders and the wealthy from all over the world. Everybody came. So I would go to a sanatorium. Mm -hmm. uh, I, know, I know about, well, tuberculosis, you would probably go to a sanatorium, right? Mm -hmm. And if I had, say, respiratory issues, including tuberculosis polio. or uh, polio, um, other communicable type diseases, I would find myself, if I had wealth and means, in a sanatorium if primarily to get sort of uh, sequestered and mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, quarantined and just let the sunshine, the air, and this, this mystical water. The water. Heal. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. what, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, as I had mentioned before, there were two that were exclusively serving the colors in Martinsville, Indiana. Their services included the mineral baths, vapor baths, Turkish baths, so Swedish massage, which you'd probably like that right now, wouldn't you, Courtney? Absolutely. <laughs> and physical therapy. Physicians were usually on staff, so all of them had doctors on staff. Now, Willis Clark, who owned one of these uh, spas for coloreds, he had been employed at the Highland Sanatorium and went into business just because he knew that black folks wanted the same services that white people did. So he built an addition onto his house, which was at 140 North Main Street. He was told by a white businessman that if you do pretty good here in your home, I assure you I'll build a hotel with bathrooms and everything you need and lease it to you. And that's what happened. Bring it on. Good evening, everyone. Resilience Productions is in the house. First, let me start by explaining who we are and what we do. Resilience Productions is conceived and created by Daniel Bruce, Gladys Devane, and myself, Elizabeth Mitchell. We are three women who believe in the power of storytelling. As an ensemble, we research, write, and produce live performances inspired by actual historical events in the form of plays, poetry, and stage readings. 
These productions are intended to cultivate an awareness as much as to entertain. By depicting the African-American experience from hardships and struggles to triumphs and successes, we are recognizing these bold and deserving men and women, ensuring their legacy will not be forgotten. Therefore, our mission as Resilience Productions is to educate, enlighten, and encourage the public regarding the many unknown and uncelebrated contributions of African Americans to our state and ultimately our country's history. Now, with that being said, Gladys Devane, and here's a guest with Resilience Productions, is Bill Breeden, a cast member of our upcoming production called Stories of Monroe in celebration of Monroe County's Bicentennial. Welcome, both of you, to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Gladys, I'd like to start off with you, please. Would you please explain to our listening audience the process of developing a story for a play? Well, first, you've got the idea, and it brews around in your head for a moment or two. And you take that idea and you say to yourself, now how do I create a narrative? Uh, A narrative that is logical, reasonable, that can tell this story, that will also be entertaining. And what that means is sometimes you have to take what we call artistic license. You You start with an event, or person or persons and uh, an event and frequently you, you don't have details so you have to figure out what is going on at that time uh, what that what the narrative would sound like and you sit down and you start creating words that will come out of the character's mouth um, and you rep- you read and you revise and you let other folks listen and make comments and you revise more and ultimately you come up with uh, a stage production. You come up with narratives that can you can bring then to the stage. Okay. Uh, Danielle, our director, was unable to uh, make it today. Uh, so why uh, would you just kind of pitch it for Danielle and explain what her role is as the director and set designer and dramaturge. Um, Danielle's role is, she wears many hats. Um, She is, first of all, the person who makes sure as I write that what I'm writing can in fact be staged. Um, And frequently she will say, oh, that sounds good and it would be wonderful in a novel but we can't stage that, so I have to go back and I revise. Um, She works, uh, uh, gives me direction uh, in the narrative, uh, creating a narrative that's tight. Um, Then she takes uh, the information, uh, uh, the play that's been written, and she develops a set. All along, while this play is being developed, she is thinking of, now, how is this going to be staged? What is the set going to look like? So that we can operate within those parameters. Um, She is also responsible for figuring out the lighting and um, exactly and the music and, you know, anything that's going to go into that production. And then choosing the cast. 
and manning the rehearsals. Um, once the story is written, it is in her hands then to make it come alive on the stage. So the three of us, we have the researcher, who is Elizabeth Mitchell. You have the writer, who's Gladys Devane. And you have the director, designer, um, choreographer, and whatever else it takes to bring it to the stage, Danielle. I've often been asked, uh, how do I come up with the stories and what do I know to research? And, and I just find my love of history and if you find a story or hear about a story, sometimes they just kind of accidentally fall into my lap. Most of the time, I will get into my car with my travel buddy, and we will go and talk to people if they are available to talk to. If not, I spend the days in the library, which I prefer to do, um, other than sitting at um, reading a book, which I'll do that too. But my preference is to dig around and find stuff and then try to find descendants of who interest me. And so with the plays that we've done, this being uh, our two second largest one, I know we've done many plays, it is to find something that compels me, that grabs at my soul. And then I share it with you and we go, yeah, I would like to write something about that. And so that's how the stories kind of evolve. And for Monroe County, it wasn't that difficult. There are a lot of stories to tell about the African-American community, how that intertwines with the white community, and how both work together to help bring forth um, uh, Bloomington to what it is today. Now, there's still a lot of work to do, but this shows you what it took in the past to get to where we are today. Uh, as I had mentioned, we had Bill Breeden with us today. He is a cast uh, in the play. Bill, what made you want to come out and audition? Well, uh, Gladys asked me to, and uh, <laughs> I want to say right up front that I'm really honored to be not only a friend of Gladys, but I'm honored to be uh, working in her play. Uh, and also in terms of resilience productions, God knows we're going to need resilience to get through the times in which we're living. And so I love it. Yeah, I love that (laughs) name. Uh, But when I looked at the play uh, the first night, and and, and I just want to say the first read-through, I identified the good actors. You know, we got good actors in this. Uh, I'm a rookie. I've been a preacher since I was 15, but I only had to play myself. (laughs) Acting's a little harder. And uh, I'm honored to work with some of these actors. They're really, really good, and I'm excited by it. Uh, the play itself, I think, is so important because I think it was Faulkner who said the past is not forgotten. It's not even the past. And the past is part of our cultural DNA. And the fact is, uh, I believe that good art always subverts the dominant paradigm. And the dominant paradigm in which we live is white supremacy, primarily white male percent supremacy and i think we're reminded that you know every month with the killing of a black man in in this country who is unarmed for traffic stops and other absurd uh, trivialities uh, we're reminded of that when we look at our history and realize that we traded you know we outlawed slavery and instituted segregation we outlawed segregation and instituted incarceration and we have a situation in america today where we decimated the people of color We have concentration camps along the border of children of color. We have prisons that are overcrowded and are inhumane. And my feeling is if we cannot understand, if we cannot accept who we've been and and honor that and and also uh, pray over that, 
we cannot know who we are, and we can never get to be who we need, need to, to be. be. Mm-hmm. So I, this play, I think, is extremely important, and uh, I think you've done amazing work. Uh, I grew up just 40 miles south of here, five miles outside of a sundown town, and I know what it is to be racist because I was. Uh, a racist. And Would you explain to our audience, excuse me, what mm-hmm. a sundown town is? A sundown town is a, t- a town where no person of color could be uh, after sundown for fear of loss of life or limb. And I, I just want to say this, is, we need to recognize who we have been in southern Indiana. Racism wasn't limited below the Mason-Dixon line. You know, it, it knows no lines. Sure. And uh, Indiana had sundown towns and sundown counties all over. And the town of Odin, where I grew up, and, and, and I love the people. I love where I grew up. I'm not denigrating those people. Uh, they were not bad people. They loved their families. They loved their churches. They loved their community. But the fact is, our town was based on white, everybody being white. And we grew up with that. And as late as 1986, we had a person come to the, the old settlers parade, which we we integrated that year with a friend of mine who went down and marched with us for peace. Uh, but we had a, a man behind our float when a black reporter, a woman, came to interview us. Uh, and then as she walked away, this man behind us, the VFW float, said, that piece of black meat better be out of town by sundown. We've had laws around here. Now, they might not have been written laws, but there were many people who considered them to be rigid laws and would have done harm to people who violated them. Mm -hmm. So we need to know that is part of our DNA. And if we don't accept it, if we don't realize it, if we don't bring it out into the open, we are, uh, we're really not moving forward as a people. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, Did you find the uh, process of auditioning hard? No, you know, I, I play small parts, thanks, yeah. thank goodness. I kind of have a personality disorder in this play because I'm playing <laughs> such different parts. Uh, I didn't find it hard. It was pretty easy. And uh, and I think that, uh, you know, you mentioned Danielle. She has another row, and that is whipcracker. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she can, you know, if you're not doing your lines right, if you're not really giving it your all, and if you're not really coming, you know, she told us when we'd be off the book. That means you can't read it anymore. Uh, and if we weren't, she she jumped in there and straightened us out. And I like a director to do that because I need that. I can get lazy and think, oh, this is easy. But it's not easy. And, and uh, she she can snap a whip and get your attention pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I have worked with um, with Bill in a play entitled The Prosecution of Judge Waite. Mm-hmm. And he was Judge Waite. And so I said to Danielle, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get Bill to... She said, ask him. Maybe he'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people have a tendency to be afraid of Gladys Devane. I, I, I don't know, know why, yeah. but if her asking is, you're just going to do it's, it. It's hard to Who's say Who's going to tell you no, Gladys? And we, I was so happy when he said, oh, yes, I, I, yeah, I would, I would consider that. <laughs> and so we feel, we feel really lucky to have Oh, him. yes, I definitely know that for sure. Uh, Gladys, uh, Bill kind of touched on this, but I want to ask you the question. This play, why now? (laughs) Why now? Why not now? Look at what is going on around us. Um, And it, to me, it's astounding that people don't realize their history and can't see what is going on now is directly related to our past. 
And we like to think, oh, this is over. That happened a long time ago. Uh, and some of those, some of us don't even know what happened long time ago. The mm-hmm. stories of a yes. long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the most appropriate time because we see the same thing happening now that happened years ago and, may, and really not so many years ago. The last scene in the play, we, uh, we, I had competing mm, endings for the play. I wanted to end it with what it was called then and what it was called now, like the ripping of kids, of of children from their parents long time ago. This we called slavery. Mm -hmm. Okay, the ripping of kids from their parents now, we are calling it border control. Yeah. Um, And and it's uh, blacks couldn't be educated years ago, and that was called really education of the worthy. We weren't worthy of being Mm. educated. Now we called it choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Taking all all of uh, uh, the money from public schools, you know, putting them into private schools. We said, we're giving you a choice. We're leaving a segment of the population behind and this is deliberate. So we had, I had this competing and I'm sorry to say that it didn't. It, it, I had to pull it because mm-hmm. I. It, it was too much, uh, and I ended the, the the with a different narrative, which I think is just as strong as this narrative. Mm-hmm. I had to choose between the two, but this is what I mean. A lot of people don't know back there what happened, and they can't see the parallel of right. what is happening now. Yeah, and exactly. and. For us, maybe maybe even for Bill, too, because you said how you grew up, Bill, when people think of the past and the youth, and that's why it was so important for us to give seats to the students, mm-hmm. we want you to know, I'm not dead. That's right. So it's not my past. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, some of it is, yeah. but a lot of it has to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to be dismissive of my life. I'm not going to shut up about that I grew up in segregation and that I should forget about it. I'm not going to forget no. my life. That's right. And so, but I want to educate people, and this is one form of education, of education. because, Lord have mercy, if we forget. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we, even, even then, even with not forgetting, we still have the tendency as human beings to repeat our mistakes That's true. over and over and over. And some of them we just can't afford to repeat. We and just it, can't. Yeah, and there's a, I think there's a slight difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what politicians, what Fox News, what uh, really the right wing in this country wants, you, wants us to do is not remember, not recall what it is. And if we don't remember, we don't recognize it when it, it comes. comes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're dealing with today. Same thing. Now, our listening audience, if we have piqued your interest, which I'm sure we have, I want to give you details on how to attend our performances. There will be four of them, and they're at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Bloomington, 2120 North Fee Lane, Bloomington, Indiana, 47408. Starting October the 11th, it'll be October 12th and October 13th, at 7 p.m. Sunday, October 14th at 3 p.m.
You can get your tickets at Busker Chumley Box Office, and that phone number is 812-323-3020. Their address is 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. These tickets are reasonable. Adult tickets are just $20. Military, $15. Children under 12, only $10. So you don't want to miss this production of uh, that Resilience produ- uh, Production has created. It's called Stories of Monroe. Now to continue, um, Gladys, why should anyone want to see this show? Is it going to be too heavy and make people feel bad? Why, why should they come? I like to know my past. I like to know about the community in which I live. I like to honor my past, and I think it's very important that the community honor its past. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason, I think it creates a better understanding across cultures, across races, when we understand better why one may perceive a situation differently than I perceive it, why one may react to that situation differently than I would react to it. So it's educational, it's eye-opening, and I think it creates a sense of, well, pride, uh, pride in my past, pride in uh, what I have accomplished, pride in what this community has accomplished. So I, I think there are a number of reasons why people should want to see this this production. Bill, in your opinion, why should people come? Well, you know, the oldest indigenous community on North America are, are the Hopi uh, tribe out in Arizona. They say oral tradition says they've been here for over 25,000 years. The four questions they use to educate their children are, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And why am I here? I think we need to know who we are. I think we know we need to know where we came from. We need to have intention about where we're going. And we need to have a reason for being here. And that is to become human beings to one another. And I think that uh, this kind of history is so important to those kind of questions. You know, we, we teach children, children to take tests. I want to teach children to ask questions. Absolutely. And ask questions about who they've been, who their grandparents were. And, you know, some of those are hard to hear. Some of the the history in my family is hard to hear. Some of it is beautiful and heroic. Some of it is tragic. I need to embrace it all because that's who I am and it's part of me. And in doing so, I can answer that question, why am I here? Why am I here? It's to be a human being. Uh, Bill, what do you think... uh, the audience sort of take away with them. I know you're saying the questions that the Hopi Indians and stuff. So is that part, you think that's what you think people should take away once they viewed this play? Oh, I think it'd be wonderful if everybody would put that, you know, I used to have a t-shirt with those questions on it. My children added, where are the cookies? Which is another (laughs) real important question. But I think, I think if it's important to come away with questions, not answers. Because answers, you know, you'll get them on reality TV, you'll get them on Fox News, you'll get them even from the left. We need to come away with questions because certainty is the most dangerous thing in in America today. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is, you know, I hope through this play that we see real people, both white and black in Monroe County, who did hard things and who did heroic things. And 
it is in seeing the heroic things in this thing, as I as I wrote uh, recently. The first read through, it was extremely emotional for me to hear this play, and uh, I think because I know my history, and I think people need to go away with those questions and say, you know, why am I here, and what can I do? subvert the dominant paradigm of white supremacy, of hatred and fear and xenophobia that is being trumped up in our society today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, dear listening audience, if you attend these performances, um, we are going to have a talkback se- sessions mm-hmm. after each one. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to do like Bill suggested that you do, is to come away with questions, you will have that opportunity to talk to Resilience Productions team, as well as the cast, to get those questions answered if you wish to. Again, if we've piqued your interest in coming to see the performances, they would be at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Bloomington at 2120 North Fee Lane, Bloomington, Indiana, 47408. The tickets may be purchased at Busker Chumley Box Office. Their telephone number is 812 812- Three two three three zero two zero. Their address is one one four East Kirkwood Avenue, Bloomington, Indiana, four seven four zero eight. Adult tickets are twenty dollars. Military fifteen and children twelve and under are ten. And you can get tickets online at the Buskirk Chumley website. Okay, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sorry I don't have that we- right. website number, but it's I'm easy sure to people, find. Yeah. yeah, I'm computer illiterate, but not everybody's <laughs> like me. me. Resilience Production is all about educating children, and we also give back to the community. As part of that, uh, we are offering some students at MCCSC free tickets. And uh, talk to a person at your school and ask about that and see if they can get in contact with me, Liz Mitchell. Uh, you can contact uh, WFHB. They'll know how to get a hold of me if you are wanting to attend one of the performances. And we're just offering a few, so it's kind of like first come, first serve. Uh, but we do want students to come out to see this play. Um, Gladys, is uh, there anything you would like to add? Uh, about the play that you feel is so important that you feel that the the listening audience ought to know? Uh, I think the listening audience should know that the talkback uh, the talkbacks are going to be as interesting and maybe in some cases even more interesting than the play because we have actual characters who lived these events participating in the talkback. For example, the Ballantine lock-in was very famous, and we have a professor who was involved in that event who is flying in from Washington, D.C. to facilitate the Friday night talkback, Orlando Taylor. We have a local guy, Lofman, uh, who is an activist doing the turbulent 60s uh, on IU's campus who will be facilitating uh, the Thursday talk back, um, and Liz Mitchell will be facilitating the uh, Saturday talk back. Um, we will have an ancestor from the blacksmith who many, many years ago designed the, the, the copper fish that adorns the courthouse, 
and she will be there to talk about what Bloomington was like given uh, her great-great-grandfather's recollection of Bloomington. So I think the talkbacks are going to be very, very interesting. Again, how do you purchase your tickets? From Busker Chumley Box Office, 812-323-3020. Adult tickets are $20. Military, 15 Children and under are 10 The performances will be at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Bloomington, 2120 North V Lane. There will be a performance Thursday, October the 11th at 7, Friday, October 12th at 7, and Saturday, October 13th at 7, and Sunday matinee, 3 o'clock. So please, you don't want to miss out on having that. Now, to end this, I'm just curious, and maybe the listening audience is too, Bill, what was it like to grow up in a sundown town? Well, you know, it was like everything was white. (laughs) And, of course, we're not white anyway. We was some kind of tan here. But uh, so we really did not uh, have any experience of people of color at all, except occasionally when a, a Foot or a basketball team would come from Washington, for instance, which had uh, black players and so forth. And even then, those days were tough. There's sometimes fights after school. There were expletives uh, hollered during the game and things like that. So we we dealt with we basically, as I said a while ago, I was a racist, not not overtly. I didn't hate them, uh, and I didn't use the N word a lot. I mean, we used it some, but it wasn't real common in my family, especially. And uh, so you know, it was like. An idyllic childhood for us. We were a poor family. We had a large family, three sets of twins and three singles and a little farm that was just half-working farm. And both my parents worked full-time by the time I was born. But we were just ignorant of people of color, totally ignorant, until really until I was in my teens and a black uh, evangelistic team came to Odin at another church. And uh, their minister, who was a liberal and got sent to this church, I think as punishment to this really conservative town, he was for civil rights. He was against the Vietnam War. And he asked my dad, he said, I have a, I have a question, a favor to ask. He said, we've got this evangelistic team coming for the fall revival, and we need a place for him to stay. And Pappy said, well, we always, evangelists always stay in our parsons with our minister. And when, he said, they can't do that. And they also can't stay in the Odin Hotel. Pappy said, why? And he said, because they're black. Mm. And uh, interestingly, Pappy said, are there holiness evangelists? Because my dad was a, a holiness singer. He said, yeah, they are. He said, well, it sounds like white folks to me. They can stay with us. So that's the first two black people I ever knew. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. And uh, there's an article in this week's Writer coming out, Writer Magazine, about that. It changed my life subtly. I didn't realize how much until later. But uh, read the Writer this week. You'll get a little flavor of that. So you're saying that uh, ignorance. So with these two people staying in your home, they educated you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. probably without even you knowing it. And That's true. I came to love them. They came back. The church called them back two or three years in a row. They loved them because mm-hmm. they were wonderful singers. And she was a honky-tonk piano player that played gospel like you never, you know, she could peel the paint off of church walls. So when these black schools and teens would come, was there a fear? Sure. Oh, absolutely. It, fear always grows out of ignorance. It's not a base feeling, I think. Fear comes out of ignorance. And when you're ignorant, you're afraid of the other. Mm-hmm. And so anytime blacks would come in, I, I remember as late as the 1980s when I moved back to Indiana, we were living in Odin at that time with my twin brother and his wife. And one day my mother came in, wonderful woman, 
But she came in, and she was terrified because there were some Mexicans in town. And, you know, Daryl and I went up to the tavern to meet with them and kind of integrated our, the Odin Tavern with the Mexican workers on the railroad. Mm-hmm. But everybody was terrified because, you know, they locked all their doors. Nobody ever locked their doors in Odin or car doors. People were going out locking up because some Mexicans were in town. So, yeah, it was a, it was we we uh, we would have said that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave or however it said, but it wasn't. It was the land of the unfree and the home of the fearful. And I think we grew up that way. Okay. Just to give a little background uh, information of Resilience Productions, uh, in 2016, the Resilience team researched, wrote, and produced an original play, Resilience, Indiana Untold Story, in celebration of Indiana's bicentennial. This play was performed to a sellout crowds for four performances and received rave reviews from local media and the community at large. Well, like I mentioned before, the resilience team is back, this time to celebrate Monroe County's bicentennial with an original play entitled Stories of Monroe. This play will highlight a select significant incidents in Monroe County's 200-year history, stories of the Underground Railroad, of slave catchers on Bloomington Square, and of local abolitionists and activists, both black and white. Mm. We bring to life stories of the internal strife and turmoil of the 60s and 70s that awakened the conscience of a community and forced it to confront issues of war, peace, equality, and justice. Stories of Monroe recognizes local heroes and hero, say that heroines, heroines. Yeah, yeah. Yes. help me out, sister. <laughs> that whose courage gave us the Bloomington we know and love. So this play is based on research by myself, Elizabeth Mitchell, written by Gladys Devane and directed by Daniel Bruce. Stories of Monroe presents a slice of Monroe County's history through stylized visual imagery and compelling storytelling. Thursday, October the 11th marks the opening of Stories of Monroe. The next performance will be Friday, October the 7th, then Saturday, October 13th, and Sunday, October 14th. Tickets at Buscourt Chumley Box Office, 812-323-30. We are looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much, Gladys Devane and Bill Breen. And thank you, Gladys and Elizabeth, for the work you've done bringing this forward. Uh, Thank you. It is our pleasure, and we're looking forward to seeing the community there and especially having the talkbacks afterwards. Again, this is Elizabeth Mitchell for Bring It On. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.